Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D. Welcome to Green Street, a project of grassroots environmental education. I'm your host, Doug Wood, here with my co-host, Patty. The prevailing wisdom in modern society is that wireless communications are convenient, inexpensive, and a perfect solution for all our connectivity needs. And now schools are getting into the act, too, placing wireless modems in classrooms from kindergarten through high school. Now, most people know, but from time to time it's convenient to forget, that wireless communications are based on electromagnetic radiation. Government officials tell us the amount of radiation is so small it's completely safe. But the government has been wrong before about exposure levels. So what effect is this constant low-level radiation going to have on children's developing bodies and brains when they're exposed every day, week after week, year after year? No one can say for sure. But everyone can agree that when it comes to our kids, we need to be careful. On this edition of Green Street, we're joined by one of the world's leading experts in this field, Dr. Magda Havas. Dr. Havas is Associate Professor of Environmental and Resource Studies at Trent University in Canada, where she teaches and does research on the biological effects of environmental contaminants. Here's our interview with Dr. Magda Havas. Let's first talk about how you first became interested in electromagnetic radiation issues. Well, one of the courses I teach uh, at Trent University is a course on pollution, and it's called Pollution Ecology, where we deal with a lot of different, mostly chemical contaminants in the environment, from asbestos to PCBs, DDT, lead, that type of thing. And I thought um, it would be interesting to include electromagnetic um, radiation in that because of the um, evidence that was beginning to come out, uh, mostly in newspapers that I was reading. And when I looked at the research, I found that um, it was very strongly biased in both ways. Um, There were studies coming out that were making claims about the harmful effects without um, providing any evidence to support the claims. And there were studies coming out uh, simply... Um, uh, bashing any of the studies that showed harmful effects, saying they were properly conducted. And um, so I started going into the literature quite carefully, and what I learned was so disturbing that I my entire area of research into electromagnetics rather than chemical toxicity. Are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay. I <laughs> thought we lost you for a second. Well, it's not surprising, given the amount of, of money uh, and the amount of, uh, you know, corporate interests that are uh, dependent on, uh, on keeping the good name for wireless communication, doesn't surprise me that there hasn't been a lot of research about what the possible negative effects might be. Well, actually, there's been quite a bit of research, but a lot of it um, is um, not so much suppressed. It's simply not made publicly available. Um, just last year, I met um, a scientist in the United States, Dr. Zori Glazier, who um, was an expert in microwave radiation going back to the 1970s. He worked for the U.S. Um, Navy and for the Food and Drug Administration for NIOSH. So he's had a lot of experience in this. And um, 
he has just recently giving me, given me his entire collection of references that go back as early as the 1930s. A lot of them are um, translations from um, different countries, mostly Russia and, and Eastern Europe. And it's a phenomenal wealth of information that much of it uh, simply hasn't been made available because some of it was classified until quite recently. And so one of the things I'm trying to do with this is to um, have the documents scanned. There's over 6,000 documents that he provided wow. me. And I'm having them scanned and making them publicly available for anyone to read. Are those going to be up on your website? They already are. Some of them, it's taking, you know, obviously to scan that many is going to take a long time. And what we've done is we've gone through all the documents once to pick out um, some of the real gems and um, the, mostly the translations that are very difficult for us to get here in North America. And so we're putting them up on, on my website and other websites as well. And your website address for our listeners is? It's www.magdahavis.com. Which is M-A-G-D-A-H-A-V-A-S.com. That's right. Um, for those of you who are near a computer, I've also put that link on our Green Street program site on the This Week page. Um, so... Okay, let's define our subject for a second. Tell us about the kinds of radiation that are emitted from wireless transmitters and how ubiquitous this exposure is in schools in particular. Well, there's basically two kinds. Um, generally, they're called radio frequency um, radiation, um, and that covers a fairly broad spectrum of frequencies. And at the top end of that, we call it microwave. So it's a combination of both microwave and radio frequency, but you can be a little bit more specific if you refer to it as microwave radiation. And there's a frequency range, and this might not mean anything to your listeners, but it's from 300 million cycles per second up to 300 billion cycles per second within that range. It's called microwave radiation. And it comes from a lot of different devices that we are now uh, using. It, cell phones, for example, uh, cordless phones, uh, smart meters that are being placed on homes to regulate the use of electricity, water, and, and gas. Um, they also, baby monitors um, use microwave frequency radiation. Wireless internet connections use microwave radiation. And um, some alarm systems in the home use this kind of wireless microwave radiation as well. So these frequencies are the same as you would find in a microwave oven, but the power is less? Is that, is that Well, it? the frequencies for your cordless phone and your cell phone and your baby monitor and your Wi-Fi are very close to the same frequencies. Um, however, for some of the other units, it might be slightly lower or slightly higher, but they're very, very close to what we use for a microwave oven. Um, tell us what we currently know about this type of radiation as it relates to children's health. How are the effects of wireless signals different for children than they are for adults? Well, first of all, there have been virtually no studies that I'm aware of, and I've, I've tried to find them. I'm, I'm reading quite deeply into the literature. There have been no studies on children at all. The studies with um, adults um, range quite a bit. Um, some of the early studies coming from the U.S. military were at fairly high exposure rates, and they were simply trying to determine whether people could, um, uh, at, what, at what frequencies and at what intensities and how quickly they could feel the heating effect of microwave radiation. In North America, our guidelines are on a thermal effect, which means that um, if the radiation doesn't heat your body, it's assumed to be safe. And for that reason, 
our guidelines are much higher, um, uh, much um, allowing us to be exposed to much higher levels than in some other countries where the radiation is based on non-thermal effects, um, biological effects, you know, people who might get headaches or there might be changes in, in membrane permeability or changes in calcium flux in the body that are all, all um, that are biological effects that could be health effects as well. So the guidelines uh, across the globe vary by about four or five orders of magnitude, which is unheard of for any kind of chemical toxicant. Uh, usually they're much, much closer than that. Um, and so virtually there have been no studies on children. The only long-term study that I was able to find at the similar frequency, 2.4 gigahertz, which is what we one of the frequencies we use for Wi-Fi, with rats, showed that um, with long-term low-level exposure, there was an impairment of the immune system, and there was a huge increase in the number of tumors that were documented in the exposed rats. And neither one of those bodes well for children in schools. We also know that children are extremely sensitive, um, much more sensitive than adults to any kind of uh, chemical or, or um, biological or um, radiation uh, effects. Um, they don't have a developed immune system. Uh, they, they tend to absorb higher frequencies, particularly from things like cell phones, because of the size and the the thickness, the size of their brain and the thickness of the skull. So there's mm -hmm. all sorts of reasons why children are much, much more sensitive. Yet we're allowing them um, to have have the same guidelines that we have for adults that are not even protective for adults. So it just um, doesn't make sense to me at all. Um, uh, which countries that um, that you or scientists working in countries that that you've been in touch with are actually addressing this? Um, you know, we hear reports, uh, you know, from Israel and and France that you know they're. They're looking at the use of Wi-Fi in schools. They're looking at the, the purchase of cell phones for children under the age of, you know, 17 or something. Who, who's the leader in the world on, on this as, well, far as, as far as protecting children? Um, there, there, it, it depends if you're talking about the scientists from different countries or the governments. From I, different I, I countries. guess I'm talking about the governments who have been who have been convinced by their okay. their scientists. Okay. Um, in that regard, um, Germany, France, Russia, um, Belgium, Finland, uh, Korea have all made um, public statements and resolutions to reduce either warnings about you know using cell phones by children or um, trying to have reductions in Wi-Fi exposure. And we can add Switzerland to that as well. So the number of countries out there is actually growing. Um, there are more and more of them recognizing um, that the science is showing that you know we need to be uh, precautious about this. Uh, we need to minimize our exposure because the studies um, that should have been done documenting their safety simply have not been done. Well, but that's always the way where those those studies <laughs> documenting the safety, um, you know, come way after you know the exposures have uh, have been have been taking place. Oh, um, I agree. You know, this is I feel as though we're simply repeating history. We've done this yeah. with asbestos. We've done it with DDT. We've done it with lead. We've done it with mercury. I mean, this is just another pollutant where. Um, you know, the financial benefits of using it, um, particularly for the industry and to some degree to the consumer, are far outweighing the um, potential health uh, effects. And, and in, in virtually every one of those cases, the public was assured that the exposure was safe. Exactly. Initially, right. they're always assured it's safe. Right. And, um, 
you know, one of the things industry tries to do is create doubt. And uh, there's a right. book uh, that came out, Doubt is Their Product, which is absolutely excellent. And in that, it shows how the cigarette uh, industry just, um, you know, instead of denying um, that things were harmful, they just say, well, we really don't know, or, you know, this study shows it's safe, so how can we possibly tell? And that's right, exactly or- where yeah. studies are inconclusive. It, oh, it's, and that's, 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 that's one of their favorite words. Exactly. inconclusive. The studies were inconclusive. Um, inconclusive and inconsistent. Right. So if you fi- find one study that doesn't show a harmful effect and you have, you know, five that do, well, it's inconsistent. And usually if you begin to look at who funds those studies, yeah. uh, a large proportion of them are funded either by the industry itself uh, that's making the profits or by the military. Um, because they have a vested interest to keep guidelines um, um, the same uh, so that they can basically expose military personnel without having to exceed, you know, the guidelines. Mm. Um, you know, I, I understand I understand the whole, you know, business political connection with, you know, the, the lobbyists and the, you know, the deep pockets and so on. But the WHO, the World Health Organization, actually, you know, has not been very active on this. And what can you tell us about the the World Health Organization and their uh, their recommendations or their lack of recommendations um, to protect protect public health? Well, I agree with you entirely. And and they have made mistakes in the past. Um, the, at the head of of uh, this particular um, department within the WHO was Dr. Michael Repicoli, who. Um, I think is responsible for keeping guidelines where they are currently. I heard him at a meeting in um, Ottawa, Ontario, a few years ago when he was still the head. He's no longer. He stepped down. And um, one of the concerns he raised, and it was a very small group of people who were allowed to attend this meeting, and one of the concerns he raised was um, if we reduce our guidelines currently, and the guidelines they have are virtually identical to the guidelines uh, we have in North America, both Mm -hmm. Canada and the United States, he said, um, what will that do to the cell phone industry? And will there be lawsuits um, if, um, you know, we, it, it will sound as though we're trying to say that the current guidelines are harmful and people might have been harmed, and therefore will there be lawsuits? And I was, I was just Applaud. flabbergasted right. that his primary concern for, was for the health of the industry rather, rather than the health of the population. Since then, it's been shown that... Um, uh, the WHO, under his um, leadership, received industry funding, which is a no-no. And um, I think that's one of the reasons he stepped down. Ah, well, that's interesting. I hope our listeners picked that picked up on that. Um, you know, we tend to, to look at the World Health Organization and, you know, think that they're a, an unbiased, um, you know, source um, for, you know, for, for really good information. Um, you know, they, they did you know, come out with something that I've used so many times in the, uh, the, the lectures that I've given, and that is that, you know, in, when, the, when the century turned, they said, you know, 100 years ago, our biggest health threat was, um, uh, was infectious disease, and now, you know, here in the year 2000, our biggest um, public health threat is environmentally mediated illness. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they were on the right track, 
Um, but but money, money has a funny money, way of, of money interfering sometimes. reason you're, so much. You're listening to time. Green Street on WBAI, and we're talking with Dr. Magda Havis, who's Associate Professor of Environmental Re- and Resource Studies at Trent University, and we're talking about wireless communications in schools. So I just want to go back to the, to the research and make sure that, that, that I understand. You said there's been a lot of research on the effects or um, the potential effects of, of uh, electromagnetic radiation, but nobody has actually looked at the effects of long-term exposure for children in schools. That's right, long-term, low-level exposure. That, um, that type of research for children has not been done. I mean, we're talking about kids who are in, in the same classroom every day, day after day, week after week, and if the whole school is wired, that's a tremendous amount of exposure over a period of time. Right, and then and then these children go back home to a to a, a wireless, um, you know, operation they, in their homes or come, in their apartment buildings. Not if they and, come to our house, they don't. Right, <laughs> no, but you know, um, you know, it, it. One of the one of the most frustrating things about these environmental exposures is that you typically do not see, you know, uh, immediate effects. Um, I mean, in some people you do, you, you know, people have headaches and actually I, you know, anecdotally, you know, I've heard so many people say they can't even hold their phone anywhere near their head because it just gets so hot, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, you know, and, and people have talked about, you know, getting headaches and being dizzy and so on and so on, but few and far between. I mean, it's, it's so ubiquitous. I, we were just in Canada last week and, you know, we, we didn't see any difference between the Canadian public and the American public in their use of, uh, of wireless devices. You've, you've actually talked, I think, Dr. Havas, to some students. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I saw a, a, a video on, uh, online where you were part of a story that talked about students who actually uh, were, had suffered some physical reaction to the uh, wireless in their school. That's right. I'm very concerned about wireless uh, at schools for the reasons, uh, Patty and Doug, that you've been talking about, that these kids are exposed virtually now 24-7. They're exposed at school and they're exposed at home to very low levels of microwave radiation. So it's like turning your microwave you know, stove on, on low and, and leaving the door it on. open, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so there's a, a real issue about that. Um, there were some parents at a school in Collingwood, Ontario, um, who started to find that their kids were coming home with headaches um, to the point that they needed medication. And uh, the headaches only occurred during school hours. They didn't occur on the weekends um, and if there was a vacation period or anything like that, they didn't occur during the summer. And um, a few of these parents began simply to talk to one another, you know, just mentioning it very casually, and found that there's a growing number of students who are developing these symptoms, the headaches, the dizziness. There's a young girl in, in Toronto, in a school in Toronto, who passed out when she was standing near the uh, wireless uh, router in the school hallway. Um, and she had a mouthful of braces, and we know that metal mm. uh, reflects the radiation. Sure. So I can only imagine what was happening inside her head with you know these metal braces. And one of the things that they talked about was that some of the kids were having heart palpitations to the point where their parents were taking them to cardiologists and they were having um, regular heart monitoring done. And these are kids in their teens, you know, which you don't expect yeah. to you know, necessarily have heart problems. And that's what alerted me because one of the studies uh, we just completed and had published in December of 2010, just uh, last month, 
is a study looking at how this radiation affects the heart. So far, um, a lot of the um, responses from people who are sensitive are uh, subjective, uh, which means it's, it, they're difficult to quantify. You know, how severe is your headache? How severe is your fatigue? How can we verify that you really are tired apart from watching you, you know, lie exhausted, you know, in your bed? And so we decided to measure the heart because one of the complaints is that uh, uh, some percentage of the population say they either have a racing heart uh, or they feel pain or pressure in the chest and um, they feel incredible levels of anxiety thinking they're having a heart attack. So we attached heart monitors to uh, a group of volunteers and exposed them and did real-time monitoring. So they were either exposed to the radiation coming just from a regular cordless phone at 2.4 gigahertz, so this is exactly the same frequency that's used for Wi-Fi, and we had uh, a sham exposure where, you know, they think they're exposed or they don't know if they're exposed and, and you know. Um, and when we did that study, out of the 25 initial subjects we worked with, 40% of them had a, a significant um, and fairly strong reaction to the radiation only when the phone was, was emitting and not when it wasn't. And one of the people, just to give you an example, they'd be lying on a, on a uh, bed and they'd have this monitor around them, and there'd be a cordless phone about a f two feet away from their head that we would either plug into a live or a dead outlet. And as soon as you plug it in, these phones radiate, so you don't have to talk on them necessarily. And um, at the end of one of, the, one of the subjects, her heart rate was about 65 beats per minute lying down, and as soon as we plugged in the phone, it jumped to 120. Mm. And that's with no movement, no exercise, absolutely nothing. And at the end of the studies where people responded that dramatically, um, showing tachycardia, rapid uh, heart rate, I would tell them what their results were. And they would tell me stories about, um, you know, sometimes they'll go shopping somewhere and suddenly their heart starts to race, they begin to perspire, they feel like they're having a heart attack, they're having an anxiety attack, basically. And if they then leave that environment, um, the symptoms go away. There's virtually nothing wrong with their heart that we could detect in our monitoring. It's simply um, a neurological reaction to radiation. So what can parents actually do? Uh, and it, it, have, have you heard of um, parents uh, being successful in, uh, in having Wi-Fi removed from, from schools? Yes, um, in um, the UK, they've been successful of having it removed in some schools. In British Columbia, they've been successful. And in some cases, governments are doing the same thing. In France, uh, parts of France, they're removing it from schools. Um, parts of Germany, they're recommending that schools be wired instead of um, using wireless technology. So it is beginning to happen, but it's happening, unfortunately, very, very slowly. And um, it's virtually uh, not happening in the United States. Uh, for some reason, um, you know, there's very strong political lobbies to keep uh, and to actually expand Wi-Fi in the school sure. environment. And I think most parents aren't aware of, of the potentially harmful effects to their kids. That's why they have Wi-Fi at home as well. Um, Do you have some kind of a, have you produced some kind of a, uh, you know, a, a booklet or a guideline um, for uh, or set of guidelines for, for parents where they can get some of the science and they can actually approach um, whether uh, school administrators, whether it be a public or private school, um, you, know, to, you know, to begin the discussion? 
I've written a number of open letters that are available on my website that anyone can use. Um, they've been sent to medical officers of health and to school boards, um, outlining uh, the facts that we have on it and, and what we don't know and why we need to be precautious um, when a uh, cautionary approach when we're dealing with children. And there's a number of excellent websites that are now starting. There are more and more parents who are beginning to educate themselves, and they're so outraged that uh, some school boards won't even tell them when they're putting the Wi-Fi in. Uh, they're not being asked permission as to whether or not their children could be exposed, whereas if, if you take a child on a school trip, a bus trip, for example, um, you have to give written permission. We have smoke-free schools, we have nut-free schools, and yet they're putting radiation in schools and exposing you know, the children and the teachers. And the type of uh, units they're putting into schools are much more powerful than what we use in the home. And so the uh, exposure mm -hmm. levels are higher because there's m many more children uh, simultaneously using the same technology. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's all sorts of reasons why we shouldn't be doing this in the school environment. But I, I sent um, you a series of websites that are absolutely excellent from you know, Wired Child, Safe Schools, um, Microwave News, um, EMF Effects on Kids. These are all websites that um, uh, are being put together by mostly parents um, uh, that are absolutely excellent, chock full of very reliable information. And so if you post those, I think that will help parents enormously. But the types of things they can do is, first of all, um, minimize the exposure in the home. That's going to be the most important environment, and particularly the child's bedroom. You want to ensure that during the night, um, you know, that child is able to get a nice restful sleep without having their body exposed to any kind of radiation. And so, that means, so, yeah, what does that mean? Let's well, that go over means, that. <laughs> okay, that means um, if you do have wireless uh, Internet access in your home, um, you could turn it off at night. Um, I recommend not having it. In my home, I have wired service. I can't use my computer anywhere I want to. Um, it's restricted to my desk, and, and so, you know, that's, I've, that's a choice I've made. Um, so if you have Wi-Fi in, in your home, you can simply turn it off or unplug it at night mm -hmm. or when you're not using it, so you minimize that exposure. If you have cordless phones in your home, most of the cordless phones we have in North America emit radiation 24-7, whether you're using them or not. Um, and there are various meters you can buy to test that. Um, most people aren't going to go to that uh, extreme. But if you can replace these wireless phones uh, with wired phones, um, that would help enormously. Um, in no in uh, Europe, they're well ahead of us, and they now have something called uh, eco-decked phones, and I think they're beginning to come to North America, E-C-O-D-E-C-T. And this particular phone is a, is a wireless phone, but it radiates only when you're using it. So it's very similar to your cell phone for that, uh, in that regard. Um, ensuring that children who do have their own cell phones, um, that they um, have them totally turned off, they have them in airplane mode um, at night so that they don't have them under their pillow, which is what I hear some kids are doing. And, uh, you know, they're either texting their friends or talking to their friends in the middle of the night, uh, and, you know, it's right under their pillow. So they're being irradiated whether or not they're talking on that phone, because every few minutes that phone will make a, a handshake with the nearest antenna. If you have um, uh, um, uh, infants and you have baby monitors, believe it or not, we have baby monitors that radiate 24-7. In Europe, they're voice-activated. 
Uh, and so the microwaves are just constantly near the infant and constantly near the uh, mother, you know, who probably has it on in a pocket or on her belt. Um, and so she's potentially damaging her ovaries, and certainly the children, the infant, should not be exposed to this radiation. And so far, uh, as I know, we can't get voice-activated monitors in North America yet um, because people don't realize, you know, that that would be a much better choice um, than the ones we have currently. And then there are smart meters that are coming on every home, and unfortunately, um, this is harder to deal with. Um, but uh, you can put shielding behind the smart meter and reduce your exposure that way um, by simply taking some metal um, and putting it behind it so that it's not rating you directly in the house. Um, but there's now ways of using wired smart meters instead of wireless. You can use um, the telephone line, for example, which has a shielded cable, and put the information through the telephone line. And I really think that's a smarter way of doing it than what we're doing in North America right now. Okay, let's get back to schools for one, for one minute, um, because that's really our focus here. Um, um, the, are, you know, are, are children being irradiated um, the same way that you're talking about um, in, in homes, in schools? I mean, are there, I mean, I guess Wi-Fi means the entire school is, uh, is, is uh, pretty much wherever you go. Wherever you go. Yeah. So kids can just carry their computers around from classroom to classroom or from wherever Which they, they don't are. tend to do in elementary school. So it doesn't make sense in elementary school to, to have. To even have it, exactly. No, it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense to have it in kindergartens uh, where kids aren't using computers. Um, Cause and if they are, you can use it wired, which means you're not going to be exposed to this radiation. Just use an Ethernet connector or fiber optics, which is probably the best thing you can do. You know, I think school officials rely often on the government uh, statements on this. And, of course, the government says that the, you know, the radiation is in within acceptable levels. Well, let's just talk for a second about when those rates were established and, you know, how that, how that happened. And when were they changed last? Well, that's a really good question. Um, they were first established in the 1960s in the United States, and it was done by a tri-council meeting um, of the, you know, the different military organizations. And um, there's an excellent paper that came out in 1980 that documents how the guidelines were actually established, and it includes interviews with some of the people who sat around the initial table. Um, the initial guideline was 100,000 microwatts per centimeter squared, and someone at the table did a, um, you know, back-of-the-napkin kind of calculation based entirely on how much a six-foot-tall, you know, 200-pound um, male soldier, because at that time the primary exposure, if not the exclusive exposure, was military. Was right. for military. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was radar. Mm -hmm. We didn't have microwave ovens back then, and we didn't have any of the other wireless technology. So it was how do you protect, you know, a soldier? And um, fortunately, a young scientist went over the calculations and realized they were off by at least a factor of 10. And so they were very quickly dropped within a matter of a few weeks from 100,000 to 10,000. And that lasted uh, for decades. They've since been reduced to 1,000. But the guideline in Russia is 10. 
the guideline in Switzerland is 10. (laughs) The guideline in a number of European countries is 10. So why are those citizens only allowed to be exposed to 10 microwatts per centimeter squared, and we're allowed to be exposed to 1,000? It just doesn't make sense. Does that, I mean, that must obviously affect the quality of the signal. Do their wireless devices work as well, or...? Oh, their wireless devices in in Europe work just as well as they do here. We don't need the power density, but the military wants to keep the power the the intensity as high as they possibly can because you're going to get higher exposure on military bases. And there's something there's a, an occupational exposure that's very intense. Um, that's for heat sealers, microwave heat sealers. A lot of the plastic products that we have you know, that cover the toys and the food and everything else that we buy Mm. that we have to rip into, Um, they're heat-sealed using microwave radiation. And those who are occupationally exposed are exposed to very high levels. And if they reduce the guidelines, those people wouldn't be able to do their job the way they do it now, which would be a good thing. Um, You know, we'd have safety guidelines. So that's really who we're protecting. We're not protecting kids at all. So this level of 1,000 microwaves per square centimeter, is that right? Microwatts. Microwatts. Microwatts per centimeter. Per centimeter. Per centimeter squared. 1,000 in North America. It's 1,000 in North America. And 10 in those other countries. And it's 10, that's right. That's one one-hundredth of, of the exposure. Exactly. And in Salzburg, Austria, um, they a group of scientists got together and medical doctors got together, and they thought that actually the best guideline would be 0.1 microwatts per centimeter squared. And there are people who react to 0.01 and 0.001 microwatts per centimeter squared. So even the 10, I don't think, is sufficient to protect the public. I think it's a a compromise between, you know, having a strong signal, um, you know, and um, and a, a meager attempt to protect the public. Okay, what do you see coming down that coming down the road? What 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 do you see as the the future of this? Um, well, in terms of uh, you know public health. And the immediate future, I think, looks very bleak. Um, in addition to Wi-Fi and smart meters that are being placed on every home, we have something called WiMAX, which is a very powerful system that's going to have um, a radius of 30 miles, and that's just going to blanket communities, and people won't be able to do very much about them. And what I see in terms of public health is that um, the rates of cancers are going to go up, heart disease is going to go up, um, Diabetes, blood sugar is going to go up. Depression is going to go up. Sleeping disturbances, pain. Um, A lot of the chronic illnesses that we're experiencing now, possibly attention deficit disorder, uh, possibly autism. There's a little bit of evidence uh, suggesting that that might be uh, related as well. So I think the the initial response is going to be very, very bad. Um, However, I think what will happen eventually is just like what's happened with asbestos and and DDT, these products um, or these devices will be um, uh, changed um, to some of the safer ones. So I'm not recommending that you know people simply stop using anything wireless. I'm simply recommending that they use it safely and not in a frivolous manner. So if you're in a in a in your home, you should be able to use a landline rather than having to rely on your cell phone or a cordless phone. Um, if you're in your car traveling, then you might have to rely on the cordless or on your cell phone. So just using it where it's absolutely necessary, building devices, having guidelines for manufacturers to keep the radiation levels as low as possible, um, not radiating when they're not in use, and uh, maybe having these um, 
uh, uh, on-demand uh, voice-activated devices that uh, we have in Europe. So the technology is there. Um, there's just no reason yet um, that the governments um, here in North America have recognized that um, you can produce safer products, and they're not uh, hence they're not regulating that they be produced in a safer, lower-emitting way. Um, you think? Do you think that that's going to be enough? to protect people if they if they do all of those things that you that you just outlined uh, you know turning off your phones when you're not using them turning off or unplugging the wi-fi in your, no, in your house no it's not going to night. be enough and it's the reason not going to be enough no it's not going to be enough and the reason is that some of what you're exposed to in the home is coming from outside that's it's what coming i thought from nearby antennas and so um there are more and more companies now that are developing shielding devices um, a number of which i've tested that are very effective you can put film on your window for example um, that reflects the radiation back out uh, triple e glass uh, reflects a lot of the radiation back out so it's also good for um you know heat uh, retention in the home conservation of energy um, there's material that you can buy that electrically sensitive people, these are individuals who respond very uh, strongly to the radiation. Um, they sleep um, under these canopies in their bed that reflects um, the radiation. It has silver fiber in the canopy, in the material. And so they basically, it's like a mosquito net that they put around their bed. And this protects them during the night if they're in an area like New York City, you know, where the number of antennas that you have there is absolutely humongous and the levels of radiation are really very high. And so this is one way, and if you're in a, an apartment building or a condominium, um, this is one way of protecting yourself not only from the antennas but your neighbor's cordless phone or your neighbor's Wi-Fi um, Internet access. Um, and there's material that you can buy that um, uh, they're making clothing out of it. So you can buy underwear, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and so if you then, you know, put your cell phone in your hip pocket, it's not going to irradiate your sperm or your ovaries. Um, you know, women are keeping some of their cell phones in their bras, I've been told. And, and some of these women have developed breast cancer in the breast that is closest to the cell phone. Same for testicular cancer. Uh, for men who are, are keeping cell phones in, in a, you know, hip pocket. pocket. Um, do you want to open up the phone for I'm, just I, a couple I just of minutes? Wanna, I just wanted yeah. to ask about, about, you know, the fact that not everyone seems to react the same way. I mean, I, I, you know. To I, be I, affected is what you're saying. Yeah. Not everyone is affected the same way, and I think that's true. And, and Dr. Um, Havas, I'm sure, um, will tell you that, you know, disease or you know the this end disease endpoint is is usually a combination of a susceptibility a genetic susceptibility and an exposure and the timing of the exposure and so on but um do you want to comment on that yes i i agree with you entirely patty um there are certain things though that tend to increase your sensitivity if you have mercury amalgam in your teeth the silver amalgam mm -hmm. um, that increases your susceptibility there seems to be an interaction with the mercury which is neurotoxin and electromagnetic energy which seems to also be a neurotoxin as a matter of fact um, there have been studies showing that if you use a cell phone it mobilizes the mercury in your fillings and you can pick it up in in your urine for example or if you go for an MRI scan, you can pick up uh, mercury right after the scan uh, in your saliva that wasn't there before. So this radiation, you know, makes the mercury much more mobile in your body. So that's one thing. Um, so the mer more mercury you have in your body, either from fillings or food or um, uh, chemical exposure, 
uh, will increase your susceptibility. If you're an early ad- adopter of this technology, then that means you're, you've been exposed to higher levels and you're more likely to develop either the cancers, um, the problems with sperm, or or the symptoms of electrical sensitivity. If you've had uh, multiple electric shocks, if you're an, an electrician, for example, or um, have had um, a severe electric shock, uh, that sensitizes you as well. If you've been in a car accident and you've had um, whiplash or damage to your uh, spinal cord, then that will sensitize you to this as well. And people who have had chemical toxins in their body, pesticides, um, that makes them much more sensitive. So these are all things that will increase your sensitivity um, to the radiation. Mm. Um, I, I'm interested in the in this whole idea of the mercury. That's a, a metal that that actually increases your your sensitivity. But um, these shields that you're talking about, the film that you can that you can put on your windows, and the the triple E glass, the reflective thing, and the silver fiber in the fabric. Um, it's metal that is that actually reflects it. And um, am I am I right? Exactly. Metal uh, can shield you, or it can increase your exposure depending on where the metal is in relation to your body versus the source. So, if you're sitting in an office and you're you're sitting beside a metal filing cabinet, and the radiation is coming from the other side of the metal filing cabinet, you're going to be shielded. If it's coming from the same side, then it's going to bounce off just like light off of a mirror, and it will increase your exposure. So you'll get I a see. double whammy. But if you got a mouthful of braces and you're a kid. Exactly. <laughs> or if you have any other kind of metal implants in your body, that's a, another potential problem. Um, there are some people with Parkinson's disease who have metal implants in the brain, um, deep brain stimulators. And they're, they're very sensitive to this radiation. And I know of an individual um, who's also a, a scientist, and he studied this uh, greatly because he happens to have one. And he said he'll go into certain environments, and suddenly his, um, uh, his implant will stop working and he'll pass out. And if he doesn't get it activated uh, within a few seconds, his life is at stake. And that's true for some people who are on um, heart, monitor, uh, heart um, um, pacemakers. Pacemakers, well. right. Mm-hmm. If you have metal uh, in your joints, um, you know, knees, hips, uh, that sort of thing, that um, uh, the radiation will be reflected by the metal and you'll have uh, localized heating effects. Um, if you're wearing, uh, some people who are electrically sensitive can't wear metal jewelry because it does the same thing, or, you know, the underwire in your bra metal rimmed glasses all of these will bounce the radiation around in in un you know predictable ways and um, increase uh, have hot spots on your body you've been listening to green street and our guest has been dr magda havas associate professor of environmental and resource studies at trent university in canada and that's going to do it for this edition of green street thanks for listening Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D.